Hello, everybody, and welcome back to New Books and Gender, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm Dr. Christina Gessler, the host of the channel. Today, we'll be talking to Anya Jabur, Regents Professor of History at the University of Montana and author of Sofa Nisba Breckenridge, Championing Women's Activism in Modern America from the University of Illinois Press. Welcome, Anya. Thank you so much, Christina. Um, Would you tell us a little bit about yourself? Sure. So I uh, grew up largely in the South, but also in the West, uh, which is where I now live and teach at the University of Montana. And uh, perhaps because of my early experiences growing up in the South, I have dedicated most of my professional career to researching uh, women, families, and children in the American South. But for my current book, I uh, ended up starting with somebody who began her life in the South and then moved on and lived her entire adult life in the North. And at the same time, because she began her life in the 19th century, which was really my uh, original area of focus, she then had the audacity to live until 1948. So in the course of tracing her life, I found myself having to move uh, both geographically and chronologically and greatly expand my base of knowledge about American history, which was great. It was kind of like being in graduate school all over again. And can you tell us a little bit about what inspired you to write this particular book? What drew you to this? Absolutely. So I had written previously uh, about... Uh, children's experiences in the South, and in particular, the experiences of young white women who attended boarding schools and early colleges in the South. And I had originally thought that I would work on kind of a companion piece to one of my previous books called Scarlet Sisters that I conceived of in my mind as my Southern school marm book. So my idea was that since I'd been researching the student's point of view, I would turn the tables and I would research the teacher's point of view. In the course of doing the kind of initial legwork to identify potential collections and individuals and schools that I might want to follow up on, I stumbled across this person, Sofanisba Breckenridge, who was indeed a school teacher in the 19th century South so that she fell within the parameters of my planned study. (laughs) But then it turned out that she was so much more. So it turned out that she was this remarkable woman, one of the first women in the United States to earn advanced degrees, both an MA and a PhD in political science and political economy, and then went on also to become one of the first women in the United States to earn her Juris Doctorate, And then after all of that, it turned out she was unable to get a faculty position in any of her several areas of expertise. And instead, initially, she took a position teaching what was arguably the first women's studies course in the U.S. in 1905. And she did it in uh, a department that At the time I began my research, I would not have thought would have lent itself to this, which was a Department of Household Administration. And so this is sort of where it all began, is that I was just amazed by this woman and 
really struck by how much education she had and yet how much discrimination she confronted. But then I was also really interested in what she did with that. And that because she could not uh, achieve success as a faculty member in any of her areas of expertise, as they were defined then, because the fields of political science and political economy and law were also male-dominated, that she then took the expertise and the training and the social statistic uh, techniques that she'd learned in graduate school and basically created a new profession out of whole cloth, uh, what I call in the book a female-friendly profession, so that she could use all of that knowledge that she had gained in a field that would actually welcome women and indeed be particularly responsive to the needs of women, both as practitioners and as clients. In the opening to the book, you talk about the tremendous job of actually tracking down all of the documents and researching her and putting together the full breadth of her life. And um, as you go through the book, the question keeps popping up for the readers. Why has her story been missing from every women's history book, from from every U.S. history book? Um, and it seems like that was became one of your driving questions, too. Um, and can you share with us why uh, you, you feel her story was missing? Sure. Yeah. So this was definitely one of the questions that was like a nagging question uh, that became sort of a mission for me to figure out, you know, how in the world could this woman who achieved so much and was so important in such a broad array of social reforms and social movements be largely neglected uh, by scholars? And uh, I mean, to the extent that, you know, I, I every time I got a book on progressive or New Deal era reforms, I checked the index to see if she's in there. And uh, not only was she usually missing, but when she was there, her name was frequently misspelled. So this was definitely something that I was really, really curious about. And I, I, I came up eventually with a variety of theories uh, for why she might have been forgotten, uh, one of which is that she simply did not fit neatly into any category. I mean, the fact that she did so much in some ways worked against her because you can't just have her in a book on woman suffrage or a book on the progressive era or a book on the New Deal because she fits into all those categories, but she also <laughs> fits into so many other categories, right? Into, uh, into works on pacifism, into works on immigrant welfare, into works on social work, uh, which social work, to be fair, tended to be where she uh, got the most attention. And so, so I think that in a way, part of, part of the reason that she was, has been overlooked is because she engaged in such wide-ranging reforms. And ultimately, I came to see that as being one of the wonderful things about this project is that she was involved in such a wide range of reforms. And so I could use her life as a window onto this whole world of women's activism from the progressive era through the New Deal. And I could also, using her life as a sort of a vehicle, uh, cover such a wide range and address such a wide range of issues that I would not have been able to do 
with, say, a less, <laughs> a less complicated character. At the same time, what that meant is that the research process was sometimes a little bit daunting. Uh, her own papers are quite extensive. Her papers at the Library of Congress alone take up 37 reels of microfilm, uh, which is how I uh, did that part of the research um, because I am in Montana. So I would order them one, I would order them four reels at a time <laughs> and go through them. And I did that first to get a sense of the basic chronology of her life. The, those, those records are chronologically organized and to kind of get a sense of all the different things that she was involved in. And, you know, kept making notes along the way going, oh my gosh, she was involved in this too. And, and she was involved in this too. And it was really fun and exciting because at the time I started this project, I'd been teaching U.S. women's history for 15 years. I've now been teaching U.S. women's history for 25 years. And I, I kept finding examples of her being involved in reforms that I'd been teaching about, but based, you know, largely on my reading and secondary sources. And so it was really exciting to get primary source material on all of those things. And then she also was involved in all of these things that despite having taught U.S. women's history for 15 or, you know, 20 years, depending on where I was in the research process, that I was completely unfamiliar with. So for instance, before I began this project, I had no idea that there, that there was such a thing as Pan-American feminism. I had never you know, heard uh, or read uh, anything about that. So, so that was really uh, exciting. And it also meant that, as I said before, I had to do a tremendous amount of background reading in areas that I had relatively, I mean, relatively shallow, I guess, knowledge in before. But it also meant that I had to do a whole lot of additional research in the primary sources. So in addition to obviously reading all of Breckenridge's own papers, not only at the Library of Congress, but also at several other repositories, I, I felt it was necessary as well to look at the records of the many, many, many organizations in which she was active and played a key role. And I also really wanted to get perspectives on her outside of her own perspective and uh, her professional organizational commitments. So I also looked for records and letters of people who had known her as people who had been her students, uh, people who had been her colleagues, um, and even people who had been her enemies. So uh, Dora Stevens of the National Women's Party was in some sense Breckenridge's arch enemy. And, uh, and so one of the last things I did in terms of the research was to look at Dora Stevens' papers and see what she had to say about, about Breckenridge. It was not complimentary. To be fair, Breckenridge also was not complimentary about Dora Stevens. They, 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 it, was a mutual, it was a mutual animosity. The book really is, in many ways, a who's who of women's history. Uh, as you go through, there's so many people that she encounters, that she spends time with, that I had no idea that she knew because I, like many people, wasn't very familiar with all of her roles in, in, in so many things that your book talks about. But I was wondering if we could 
really talk about her, where she was born and when she was born, because as you go through her life and you share about her, those, those early things really had a huge impact on her, specifically when she was born and what was going on in the nation at that time. Could you share a bit about that impact? Uh, we'll tell listeners what that is uh, and what that impact was on her. Sure. Yes. Yeah, so, Brecon, I mean, you're right. The time and place here were interesting. I mean, of course, that, that's always interesting to historians. But so Breckenridge was born in Kentucky right after the Civil War in 1866. Her father, who had been an officer in the Confederate Army, dubbed her his peace baby. And that was a, uh, a moniker that would come to have a lot of meaning in her later life since she became a lifelong pacifist. And what that timing meant was that she was growing up in the South during Reconstruction in the immediate aftermath of emancipation and also during redemption, uh, the process by which white male Southerners reclaimed their political and economic dominance. And her, her father was very much a part of that uh, as a U.S. congressman representing uh, Kentucky. So those things had a really profound effect on Breckenridge, not necessarily in the ways that one might have expected. So because, of, because Breckenridge herself came from a slaveholding family, Her family, of course, uh, had financial losses as a result of African-American emancipation. And while some white Southerners responded to that with uh, sort of uh, resentment, uh, to put it mildly, uh, directed at newly freed uh, Southern Blacks, Breckenridge instead took it to mean that people often suffered financial reverses for reasons that were beyond their control. And thus, she dedicated her adult life uh, to trying to create programs that would provide a safety net uh, for people during financial hardship. Not necessarily what you would expect, but that's how that's, that's where she took it. And then likewise, uh, in Growing up in uh, the redemption era, I mean, her her teen years coincided with a terrible period of racial violence, a, a period that some historians call the nadir of Southern race relations. And her own father participated in the disfranchisement of African-Americans. He actually came up with Kentucky's version of the poll tax, um, uh, and he defended Klansmen who had been, he was a lawyer. He defended Klansmen who had been accused of uh, assailing uh, African-American citizens. But again, what Breckenridge took from that was not that. What she took instead from that was that at the same time he did those things, he also said that African-Americans were entitled to fair treatment and that that meant that because they paid taxes, they should also get their own schools and that because they were subject to the law, they should be allowed to testify in court on their own behalf. And so uh, Breckenridge in her memoirs makes a sort of very selective use of her father's um, political participation to emphasize the ways that he stood for what she calls fair play rather than emphasizing the ways in which he actually stood uh, for white supremacy. 
And a lot of those conflicts come to the forefront for her personally uh, when her beliefs are really put into challenge when she's at Wellesley and she has to serve students in the dining hall that she was really unprepared to be asked to do. Uh, can you can you tell that really powerful, important story? Absolutely. So Breckenridge really never examined, I think, her beliefs about race until she went to Wellesley. And while um, there's no evidence, direct evidence anyway, that as a child, Breckenridge was aware of racial violence, although it's hard to imagine that she wasn't. But it is quite clear, not so much from her own writings, but from those of her older sister, Ella, that the Breckenridge family definitely practiced um, what Jennifer Ritterhouse calls racial etiquette, and that they abided by this kind of code that reinforced white supremacy and demanded Black deference. And one of the most important parts of that racial etiquette was that Blacks and whites never ate meals together. Blacks served whites in the formal areas of the house, the dining room and the parlor, and they ate after whites and separately in the kitchen or the cellar. And that was one of the sort of really most enshrined pieces of this racial etiquette that helped to separate the races and reinforce white dominance. So when Breckenridge went to Wellesley, then this was challenged because Wellesley was uh, one of the only colleges to admit uh, black students on an equal basis with whites, not that it admitted very many, but it did have some. And also the president of Wellesley um, was insistent uh, was, was a, an avid supporter of African-American rights, and Breckenridge's father grumbled about her, her being an abolitionist, in fact. Anyway, and so, um, and so African-American groups would come to campus, um, choirs and uh, the like. Frederick Douglass came and spoke on campus as well, and that was really hard for Breckenridge at the time. I think it was probably the first time in her entire life she had heard about slavery from the standpoint of a former slave. And she was really profoundly affected by that. But the incident that you're referring to is when an African-American college choir came to campus and then they stayed for dinner. And at Wellesley, they had, you know, long dining tables and everyone sat together and nobody served you. It was family style. You passed the plates, you know, from one to the other. And so um, Breckenridge was you know, very eager to emulate um, uh, Alice Palmer, the Freeman, actually, at the time, uh, the president of the college. And she also had never confronted this experience, this situation in her entire life. And she describes it in her memoirs as being this kind of really difficult moment. She said that she served the African-American women at her table, but that she herself could not swallow her own food. She just couldn't do it. But she she moved past that. She overcame that. And uh, by the time she graduated, she had actually participated in um, a, a conversation um, uh, that ended up uh, desegregating the college's big social event of the year. And she did that on behalf of a classmate, an African-American classmate. Her name was Ella Smith. And Ella 
was like Nisba, um, to use both women's first names, uh, a classics scholar. And so they had that in common. And it's really interesting because when uh, when Nisba Breckenridge first enrolled at Wellesley, she encountered Ella Smith and she uh, encountered another one of those rules of racial etiquette, which is that a white person never uses a title to refer to a black person, whereas black people always were expected to use titles to refer to white people. And so in her one of her early letters home, she refers to Ella Smith as Miss Smith, but she puts Miss in quote marks, indicating that she was really uncomfortable uh, with using that title. Um, but then, of course, she also mentioned that she was very, you know, uh, apparently quite uh, intellectually able. And then ultimately, she ends up uh, advocating on Ella Smith's behalf that that Miss Smith, and now she really meant Miss Smith, she didn't have to put those uncomfortable quote marks around the name, that Miss Smith's uh, family and friends should be able to attend this event, just like all of the other students. So Wellesley, Wellesley for, for Breckenridge was a really important um, set of experiences between her Kentucky childhood and then her adult life as an educator and an activist in Chicago, uh, without which she might not have become an advocate for racial equality and African-American welfare, along with all of her other uh, activist commitments. And there's a, a really strong theme through the book about how, while she's growing as an intellectual, she's also unraveling so many of the beliefs that she thought she knew, often unintentionally, um, because she finds out that while she was so close to her dad and he had been such a strong relationship in her life, he was the one who believed in her intellectually and encouraged her so much. Uh, is after she graduates college, she finds out that her dad has betrayed her mother in a really significant way. Can you talk about uh, her dad's, what I will call her dad's sex scandal? Sure. Yes, absolutely. And it was one of the greatest sex scandals of the age. And for Nisba, it was absolutely devastating. So, I mean, Breckenridge's after-college experience was hard enough. Um, she had very lofty ideals and, and high goals for what she would do after college. And then, like a lot of other women of her generation, she kind of came down to earth with a thump when she realized that many of the avenues were blocked uh, by gender discrimination and, and also, just as importantly, by what Jane Addams famously called the family claim, this expectation that unmarried women uh, would devote themselves to taking care of their families rather than pursuing their own goals. So that would have been hard enough. But for Breckenridge, yeah, I mean, <laughs> it was made immeasurably worse um, by, first of all, her mother's untimely death. And then immediately on the heels of that, well, almost immediately, within a year, her father's remarriage, which then provoked his longtime mistress to file uh, charges against him. And those charges um, quite, um, and her evidence quite indisputably showed that they had been carrying on a long-term affair. It had actually begun when Nisba was in her first year at Wellesley um, and when the woman uh, herself was uh, within a year of Nisba's own age, uh, which is, must have been 
terrible, although Breckenridge never commented on that in her memoirs. It's one of the interesting silences <laughs> there. Anyway, and so, yeah, I mean, Nisba had adored her father. She said she learned her letters from his law books. He had been the one who uh, encouraged her to pursue higher education. He'd uh, basically strong-armed the University of Kentucky into letting women in so that she could become educated. Um, and then he supported her at Wellesley. And learning that her father, who she had trusted so implicitly, had betrayed her mother so completely was really very difficult. And then, to make matters worse, he actually recruited his children to collect what he thought would be exculpatory evidence. And so, and so poor Nisba, um, who at this point was trying to start a law practice, ended up spending her first year as a lawyer interviewing people, trying to cast reasonable doubt on uh, Madeline Pollard. That's um, the name of the woman who'd had this long-term affair, trying to cast doubt on Madeline Pollard's claims that um, that she had had uh, two living children uh, with uh, Breckenridge's father, WCP, um, and had um, miscarried a third. Um, and so Breckenridge got to, Nisba got to interview chambermaids and um, at the, you know, Houses of Assignation, where um, WCP and Pollard had carried on their affair, and interview the personnel at the orphanage where the children that resulted from that affair uh, were placed. And again, she does not uh, talk very much about that in her memoirs. She kind of compresses this time period in her memoirs um, and brushes over it really quickly and just sort of says, it was a difficult time and I became very ill and then, you know, <laughs> moves us right along um, to Chicago where she sort of worked out her own salvation by pursuing higher education. But it's clear that, I mean, this, this was a shattering experience. And um, although it was personally devastating, uh, I also think it, it is probably the case that she might never have left home and then might never have achieved the things that she achieved had it not been for this betrayal. Uh, because it's shortly after that uh, terrible time in her life um, that she went to Chicago and uh, she then claimed, um, and whether this is accurate or not, it was certainly an emotional truth, she claimed that she never afterwards went back to Kentucky without having a return ticket to Chicago in her possession. Wow. So I, I want to continue with the story of Chicago. And you open chapter four with a riot. And people will be listening to this at different points in their life. But as we're recording it, we are in the midst of tremendous uh, protests and riots. So it was striking at so many points in this book, how many things she experienced are happening right now, including when her dad was accused by the woman. He said she had been a 17-year-old experienced temptress. And I couldn't help but think of some recent um, cases in the news where that has been the original defense uh, um, an accused man has offered. And then as the information came out, you know, it unraveled that. So it was 
really surprised and not surprised that that's an age old uh, go to defense. Um, and then to go into the next chapter and that we open with with this vivid riot happening. So I wondered if you could you could take us to that. Absolutely. Uh, right before I go there, um, I'll just mention this is not in the book. This is uh, really an, an article um, that I wrote for the Journal of Women's History. But I think it's really significant that in the 1930s, so decades after the affair, Breckenridge then became a passionate advocate of civil rights for accused prostitutes. And in that, uh, in that fight, uh, she also denounced the sexual double standard that held that women who had sex outside of marriage were ruined and that men could, you know, carry on merrily with their, with their lives. And again, this is one of these things that I'm inferring uh, rather than something that she actually says, but I firmly believe there's a connection between her, um, her sense that Madeline Pollard had been wronged both by her father and by the, by, you know, society and the legal system, and then her later defense of, of uh, women accused of engaging in the sex trade, uh, whether they did or didn't. But to your question, the riot. Yes. Um, the, the riot that I write about in that chapter took place in 1915. And of course, it did not start as a riot. It started as an entirely peaceful protest of 1,500 women, men, and children who were protesting the widespread unemployment in Chicago. But the police overreacted, and they called in the riot squad, and they just attacked the protesters and um, and injured uh, many of them uh, quite severely. And, um, and then where Breckenridge comes in is that she was there uh, when, when the protest that ended with police violence occurred. And she uh, then called Jane Adams and the, the two of them went together to the precinct where uh, some of the protesters had been uh, jailed. And so they went there to bail them out. But also Breckenridge herself uh, was asked to uh, speak about whether or not the protesters were inciting a riot, um, which is what the, the police officers had claimed. And she defended them and said, no, they absolutely were not inciting a riot. They were engaged in peaceful protest. Um, they were calling attention uh, to um, the fact that, you know, labor is different from other resources. You can't just like hold it in reserve um, and then, you know, trickle it out later. People need to eat now, uh, not later when jobs are available. And so she defended the protesters. And one of my favorite images of Breckenridge is from that moment when she was sitting, uh, when a photographer took a picture of her and she was in the, in the police precinct, um, sitting very composed, very calm, very proper in a suit and gloves and hat. Right. Um, and she was there to bail out, um, the jailed, the jailed protesters, which I just thought really kind of captured a lot of things about her that she understood and appreciated the need for, on the ground protest. 
and she defended the rights of the protesters, and she upheld the legitimacy of their concerns. And at the same time, she herself was um, a very privileged, uh, I mean, compared to the protesters, most of the protesters, uh, you know, she was privileged, she was white, she was middle class, she was educated. And so although she did sometimes engage in um, street action, she, generally speaking, uh, cast herself as what I call an academic activist or an activist academic. So she used her intellectual abilities and her academic acumen and her professional persona to promote public policy and to support social reform uh, more behind the scenes rather than in the streets. Um, much as, you know, you don't have a picture of her in the protest, right? You have a picture of her later uh, bailing out the bailing out the, the people who had been jailed. And there was another section of that chapter that struck me as being very timely. Again, we're taping during the COVID pandemic and uh, how strongly affected the meatpacking uh, industry has been affected by that and calls for reforms for worker safety to protect their health. And you also talk about how she was investigating the meatpacking industry. Can you tell us about that? Yes. So in 1906, shortly after Breckenridge had completed her formal education, she had become acquainted with Jane Addams and the whole circle of reformers, including labor reformers, who were affiliated with Hull House. And because Breckenridge was trained in social scientific methods and because she was particularly interested in the problems of working women, Jane Addams suggested that she should conduct an inspection of the working conditions of women and girls in Chicago's meatpacking district. And Breckenridge agreed, and she spent several months there. And the, the situation that she encountered as we probably all now know to expect. <laughs> um, the situation was horrific, right? Um, the workers uh, worked in very crowded conditions and unventilated and uh, terribly unsanitary working conditions um, for very long hours and for very little pay. Uh, I mean, it was just, you know, I mean, it was just all around dreadful. And yes, when you read the accounts now of the kind of tight working conditions and the lack of concern for worker safety in today's meatpacking plants. I mean, it's just eerily reminiscent of what Breckenridge observed. And this was another one of those aha moments for Breckenridge. Um, I think she'd had a, a an intellectual understanding of the problem uh, before, but she was really profoundly affected by what she saw. She told Adams that she could not sleep because she couldn't, you know, she closed her eyes and she kept seeing uh, the workers uh, from the plants. But of course, because this is how she kind of dealt with things, what she did with that angst was to try to change policy. Uh, so that she amassed evidence, and then she used about Chicago's plants, and then she used that evidence to to lobby for a federal 
investigation. Um, and then that federal investigation ultimately led to the establishment of um, two new bureaus in the Labor Department, the U.S. Children's Bureau and the U.S. Women's Bureau. And then those bureaus went on to lobby for new labor legislation um, for decades uh, to come, which ultimately resulted in 1938 in the Fair Labor Standards Act, which um, established a minimum wage and maximum hours for both women and men and outlawed child labor. However, unfortunately, it also excluded a number of occupations, especially occupations filled by people of color and women, like seasonal occupations and domestic occupations. And of course, we're, we're still seeing the, the problems that that, that omission created. Um, meanwhile, at a local level, Brackenridge became a leader in the fight for what people at the time called protective legislation uh, or gender-specific legislation or age-specific legislation uh, to ban child labor and to uh, limit the hours of labor for women workers and also, although she was less successful on this front, to promote a minimum wage for women workers in Illinois. And as we go through the book, we really see her grappling with what is equality, what is fairness, what is feminism. And you quote her as saying, nothing can be more unequal than calling unequals equal. Can you tell us how that really sort of sums up this philosophy that she's she's building as she goes along? Yes. So this is one of these places where Breckenridge takes her her father's, you know, maxim about fair play to places that I'm sure he never envisioned, that Breckenridge was always interested in striking a balance between demanding equality and acknowledging difference. She believed that it was the government's job to recognize and to offset inequality. Um, and thus make it possible by, you know, to recognize that there wasn't a level playing field, um, to make the playing field level so that then people could actually achieve their full potential. And so, I mean, you see this now, right? Sometimes on Facebook, you see those memes and there's a fence and there's a game or something going on beyond the fence. And then there's people behind the fence and you know, there's a tall person and there's a short person and the short person is on a box. And the point is that, you know, if it's equal, the short person is not going to be able to see over the fence. But if there's this particular accommodation uh, for the short short person, then that's what makes them really equal, right? I mean, this is a meme uh, that goes around. I mean, that was kind of Breckenridge's point, right? That the That it was the government's job to uh, take note of all kinds of structural inequalities that disadvantaged people, uh, particularly socially and economically, and to um, to uh, mitigate um, uh, and hopefully you know completely eliminate um, those inequalities, so that then people could really be on an equal playing field, and so that. That's true, I think, for her, all of her um, domestic reform activity. Actually, I think it's true for her international reform activity as well. She would have said the same thing about developing nations. 
Um, but to go back to the the chapter that I really delve into this, this is um, a, an idea that really informed her approach to feminism, and in particular, the context of that of that quote that you shared was that she became one of the most outspoken opponents of the Equal Rights Amendment in the 1920s and 1930s, not because she was opposed to women's equality, but because she feared that uh, an absolute equal identical treatment under the law would actually exacerbate inequalities because it would not take into account women's uh, disadvantages in the workforce. It would not take into account women's special responsibilities for domestic life. It would not take into account that women and only women um, bore children and um, cared for them um, in their in their youngest uh, years. And that the so her concern was that the Equal Rights Amendment would ruin all of the programs that Breckenridge and many of her like-minded activists had been working on for so long that did take those inequalities into account and try to address them. So things like protective legislation, which I've already talked about, um, but also programs like mother's pensions, which um, was the kind of popular term for financial assistance for single mothers, and also uh, programs like the one established by the Shepherd Counter Act in the 1920s that provided uh, federally subsidized health care for pregnant women and new mothers and their infants. And all of those programs, of course, were gender specific. And so Breckenridge feared that the Equal Rights Amendment would um, dismantle uh, those programs. And, and I mean, this was a really realistic fear. Um, I mean, the, I mean, these programs were under a lot of attack. This was the 1920s. It was the first Red Scare. Um, a lot of people were not at all happy with the federal government helping anyone, uh, much less women and children. Um, the Supreme Court had struck down a minimum wage for women workers um, in 1923, declaring that the 19th Amendment, the suffrage amendment, had made women equal, so they no longer were entitled to special treatment. Um, uh, the American Medical Association and uh, other uh, powerful lobbyists were fighting really hard to defund the maternity and infancy program established by the Shepherd Towner Act. So, so Breckenridge was, in the sense, being being quite realistic, um, and she said, you know, basically, you know, let's not sacrifice real women in the name of this ideal of equality. It's not equal um, if we actually treat everyone absolutely identically. We have to take difference into account. And do you think some of her intense knowledge of how that feels really was rooted back in when she was highly capable and well-prepared and yet had few choices of which colleges to go to? That is a great question. And I would say, yes, this is not, this is not in the book. <laughs> um, but, uh, but in her memoirs, she talks about how she designed this pioneering women's studies class that she taught. It was on the legal and economic status of women. 
And she talked about how she made sure to address the different but equally difficult circumstances that confronted women on sort of the the ends of the spectrum of being uh, disadvantaged versus privileged, right? That more disadvantaged women were cordoned off into uh, poorly paid industries that had terrible working conditions, such as the textile industry, as well as, of course, the meatpacking industry, which we already talked about. Whereas at the other end of the spectrum, women more like Breckenridge, right? Um, no matter how qualified, no matter how educated, no matter how ambitious, um, also uh, had really limited choices. So, I mean, Breckenridge clearly was, you know, relatively speaking, <laughs> advantaged um, over the over, uh, for instance, the meatpacking workers. But I think, yes, I think that her personal concern uh, for um, a variety of groups was was rooted in her own experiences of discrimination. So along those lines, one of the places, one of these places where I finally found a smoking gun and I was like, aha, I, you know, I don't just have to, you know, infer this. I can, you know, really say it a bit more strongly was when I found a book review that Breckenridge had written about a book um, called Half a Man that was about race discrimination. And the way that Breckenridge talked about racial discrimination was just so, it mapped so well onto her discussion of her own life in her memoirs, because she talked about how racial discrimination, external obstacles, resulted in uh, or intensified um, internal doubts, right? Um, that when African Americans encountered racism, that that, you know, enhanced any uh, doubts that they had about their own worthiness, their own ability, their own deservingness of equality. And that is exactly what comes through in Breckenridge's memoirs about herself, that when she encountered repeated obstacles, she became severely depressed um, and she doubted herself and she doubted her own abilities. And, um, and so I, I think then that, yeah, that the challenges that she experienced, um, while different in type and different in degree um, from those of some, you know, people, some other people, enabled her to have a, a sense of a sense of identification um, with them, rather than being just a concerned outsider. And you talk about early on, which we've touched on, that, that her story really hasn't been brought to the forefront in the way we would have expected. And that perhaps one of the reasons for that was that she was so collaborative and that a lot of her work has actually been talked about uh, in the work of other women, and yet she didn't get mentioned. And through the book, we see several really important female relationships that she has. Um, and I was wondering if you could tell us about her relationship with Talbot. Sure. Um, so, yes, she had a number of very important, significant, life-changing, it's fair to say, uh, relationships <laughs> with other women. Um, 
But, uh, but one of those uh, was her relationship with Marion Talbot, uh, who was the dean of women at the University of Chicago and became first Breckenridge's mentor and then Breckenridge's champion um, and then Breckenridge's partner, um, both personally and uh, professionally. Um, so Marion Talbot is the one who made it possible for Breckenridge to attend the University of Chicago um, by this point. Uh, in the 1890s, um, Breckenridge's family had suffered further financial reverses, first in the panic of 1873 and then again in the economic downturn of the 1890s. And so Breckenridge was, um, was self-supporting and she couldn't afford tuition at the University of Chicago. And Talbot um, got her a fellowship, um, uh, uh, wrenched it away uh, from the university administration after a, a male uh, fellow had turned it down and gave her a part-time job. Well, two part-time jobs, actually one part-time job as her assistant, um, in the administrative work of the Dean of women. And then another as her assistant in the women's residence halls, which of course gave women, gave Breckenridge, um, free room and board. Um, and then Talbot constantly agitated for further opportunities for Breckenridge, including, her appointment as an instructor initially in the Department of Household Administration in which she taught that, um, that women's studies course. Um, Breckenridge and Talbot uh, had a relationship that changed um, in between roughly 1903 and 1911. Uh, Talbot was sort of uh, supplanted um, in for first place, I guess, in Breckenridge's affections by uh, uh, another woman, Edith, Edith Abbott, uh, with whom Breckenridge would spend the rest of her life. Um, but Breckenridge never abandoned Talbot. Um, they, they remained um, very close friends. They continued to vacation together. Um, Breckenridge, uh, they continued to work together until Talbot's retirement in the 1920s. And Breckenridge visited her every night, uh, no matter what the weather, uh, in Chicago. One of uh, her students uh, commented on this, Ashley, and, and she said, you know, that, you know, Miss Breckenridge went every night to see Miss Talbot. On the other hand, Miss Abbott and Miss Talbot did not get along. I don't know why, <laughs> which I think is hysterical, because, of course, when you or when I, you know, read the some of the correspondence um, between uh, Talbot and Abbott, it's quite clear that the reason that they did not get along was because they were vying for Breckenridge's affections. And ultimately, um, ultimately Abbott became Breckenridge's um, longtime life partner. And you describe that as a productive partnership that lasted for more than 40 years. Um, and I hope you'll tell us more about that. But one of the things that struck me was the voluminous nature of the research that you just doggedly and trebly uncovered. And there was only a handful of letters and telegrams between the two of them. So for the other chapters, you you really had so much primary material. And yet here, this incredibly important, intimate relationship between them, you had very little between them in their own voice. I wonder if you can tell us about that. Yes. Well, it's one of the ironies, right, that because they were practically inseparable, they they didn't have to write to each other uh, very much at all. Um, they didn't actually 
uh, officially um, share a residence actually until the 1940s. Um, I mean, quite late uh, in their relationship, but um, but they shared offices. Um, they uh, probably um, shared a room when they were both residents at Hull House, although the records um, don't reveal that for certain. Um, but you know, they vacationed together uh, for the most part. They traveled together to professional conferences and to, um, you know, various social reform gatherings, like a, a gathering in Europe that was about um, refugees, um, for example. And so so they were hardly ever apart, which means they hardly ever had to write to one another. So it's, it's a bit frustrating <laughs> um, that there aren't very many letters but the letters that they do exchange are so powerful and they convey so clearly that these women were everything to each other. I'm so sorry. So, I mean, I mean, they are clearly, they are clearly love letters. I mean, they speak about their mutual devotion. They speak about their need for one another's company and advice and support. And I mean, they're, they're really very powerful letters, but there aren't very many of them. Um, and, uh, and in fact, I think one of the most important sources on their relationship is actually the condolence letters that Abbott received after Breckenridge's death. And I mean, there's, 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 I think an entire reel of microfilm letters just of condolence letters that Edith Abbott received from their mutual friends, their former students, their uh, political allies. And all of them comment that this was like the ideal relationship, that they fulfilled one another's every need, um, that they complemented one another perfectly, um, that they cared for each other in illness, um, and also that their relationship allowed them to achieve far more together than either one of them could have done um, on her own. And so, um, so yes, so although in some ways the documentation is not as complete as one might wish, um, there's certainly ample evidence uh, of how important this relationship was personally professionally, um, and politically. And when you are uh, describing um, Nisbet at the end, you say that a current slogan or phrase, she persisted, really sums her up. And I wonder if you could tell us um, why, that, why that really does uh, sum up the book and, and, and her work. Absolutely. So, I mean, Breckenridge was just incredibly persistent, and she persevered in the face of so many obstacles, um, obstacles to her own, um, you know, in her own personal life and, and uh, in her own uh, professional ambitions, certainly, as I've mentioned, um, but also obstacles to her political priorities. So she advocated for a ban on child labor uh, for more than 30 years uh, before it was finally um, included 
in the Fair Labor Standards Act. Um, and along the way, there were times that um, it seemed like it had been achieved and then it was overturned, um, or it seemed like the amendment was on the verge of being ratified and then it wasn't. So um, so it's a long, ongoing struggle, but it's a long, ongoing struggle with these, with these setbacks, right? Um, she'd fought so hard for... Um, a minimum wage for working women, and then, you know, that was overturned. Um, in other areas, she simply never had any success. So she was a strong advocate of a federal anti-lynching law, and um, and that too, uh, right, was not adopted uh, in, her, in her lifetime, although, you know, she was pushing for it all along the way. She uh, was a devoted pacifist. Um, she believed that um, nations uh, should uh, create um, what she called a world state um, uh, and that uh, the advantaged nations should um, assist disadvantaged nations so that there would not be the kinds of problems that led to discontent and led to rebellion and led to war. Um, and of course, she, you know, opposed both world wars. And yet, as we know, both world wars happened. So, so, you know, she lost, she, you know, in the sense of did not achieving her ends, she lost a lot. Um, and even when she did achieve things, um, she often got only a partial win. Um, and then sometimes those gains were rolled back. And yet, she never gave up. Um, and so that's that's really why then when that hashtag she persisted uh, went viral, uh, that is why I thought that that was such a good a good uh, tagline in uh, our current uh, well what was then our current situation um, to describe her. Uh, Breckenridge herself used the phrase "passionate patience," um, which I think also really. Um, gets at this really important part of what she was and how she did what she did was that she, she was very passionate and that passion propelled her into this work in the first place and allowed her to carry on this work for decades. And she was also very patient. Um, and so she was, she was, she was willing to just keep at it doggedly um, for as long as it took. And you describe her, you say, if she was not the patron saint of lost causes, she was certainly a lawyer, su loyal supporter of unpopular ones. Yes, exactly. And, uh, well, I mean, so, and the anti-lynching legislation would be, would be, of course, one example uh, of that. But, um, but, but many of the other things as well. I mean, so just to give an example that I haven't said so much about, um, her her um, advocacy on behalf of immigrants was a very unpopular stance, uh, particularly um, uh, in the uh, years surrounding World War I, um, and then again in the years surrounding World War II. And, but, you know, of course, that did not deter her at all. She uh, was absolutely committed to immigrant welfare. She um, couldn't get federal support. So she started a private agency um, during World War II. She did her best uh, to uh, 
leverage her contacts in the federal government to loosen up uh, refugee policy to allow Jewish refugees in. Obviously, she was unsuccessful. Um, but uh, yeah, so she she definitely she definitely was willing to take up unpopular causes and to persist in her support of unpopular causes. This is such a fascinating book. Uh, we've really just hit on the tip of the iceberg. Uh, and there's just so much more I could ask you about, but we're running out of time. So I want to ask you if you want to tell us a bit about whatever your current project is. Sure. So, well, my current project is, of course, converting all of my classes to online and remote delivery in light of the pandemic. But my research project, which uh, I hope to get back to soon, is actually about Marion Talbot. Um, I, I uncovered so much information about Marion Talbot in the course of my research with Breckenridge because of their close association. And Talbot was such a powerful advocate for uh, equality in women's education uh, at the University of Chicago and elsewhere. That, um, And she also does not have a full-length biography. There's a, a couple of essays, um, really good essays about her, but uh, there's no full-length biography. So I, um, that, is my, that is my plan for when I next have the opportunity to travel and go to an archive is to uh, delve back into the Marion Talbot papers. And I hope you'll come back and talk to us when that book comes out. I would love to. Uh, wonderful. So we've been talking today about Sofun Siba Breckenridge, Champion Women's Activism in Modern America by Anya Jaber. I'm Dr. Christina Gessler. You've been listening to New Book Network. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs>